Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. This computer has a vast memory capacity. This is not a computer simulation. Most unusual. Are we ready to release our new software? Yes, sir. As requested, it's full of bugs, which means people will be forced to upgrade for years. Outstanding. Good. You've covered all the bases. Computer status report. From this time forward, you will service us. Our priorities seem to have changed. There's no news. Like bad news. Would you mind identifying what you are? Bites. Big thanks to Bumpy for the last three hours of The Distant Sky. They'll be back from 4 to 7pm next Wednesday. Welcome to Bite Into It in this NADOC week. On the mics, we've got Joe. Good evening. And I'm Vanessa. Thanks for being with us. Tonight, we explore how a national approach to home thermal efficiency might help us reach our carbon emissions targets. But first, we're going to have a fair bit of news because there's so much going on at this time of year. Um, there might be a bit of monologuing from me this show because Joe has come off a bit of a lurgy. Oh, look, COVID, the COVID brain fog is real. <laughs> Post-COVID, I should say. I'm not leaving no. the house with COVID. No, and I'm just so grateful to have you back. But let's just let's keep it contained over there, the asks of you. And, <laughs> Very uh, kind. Yeah, we'll keep it modest. I got some songs to play. I love that. It's always It's always about Joe's song choice and who you decide to celebrate. But it's also all about the tech news. Let's get there. There's a bit of NBN co-news. They've announced that they're going to refine their prices with smaller internet providers in mind. So this is about the on-selling of NBN capacity. Um, They're worried that their pricing at the moment is disadvantageous to smaller ISPs, but they don't think that they've got the right mix of customers at the moment to offset their costs. So I can only imagine how complex the business models are there as they try and figure out what gets them to profitability. But, you know, they've got a responsibility to communities to service them. So they've, they've got a few different demands. It'd be nice to see some um, cooperative um, providers. Yeah. Like um, Co-Power are wonderful in terms of electricity. There you go. It'd be a good model to to see in that space, well, I reckon. It's um, it's interesting to hear that smaller providers account for about 15% of all active NBN services. And so that's a number that's just gradually been increasing as, as we get more um, competition in the market, which we know is only a great thing for consumers. But uh, at the moment, they often don't have uh, the same weight in terms of negotiating. That's 
probably always going to be the case. Mm. But also they haven't been known to be organised enough to be making the regulatory submissions when the ombudsman, you know, sort of asks, what should we be focusing on? How do we need to balance this market better? Uh, So there you go. It's kind of interesting. Watch this space. I guess we'll see what happens and whether it affects any of the major player deals. So, yeah. Optus have been doing a bunch of predictions about, you know, different tiers of access and what sort of demand they expect to see for, say, the 50 megabits per second tier versus, you know, more demand for 100 megabits. But um, some people downgrading to save money in these tough times to 25 megabits per second. So just kind of interesting to think about these options and these choices and, you know, it's happening at the consumer level but also what happens at the business level, you know, which which can affect things really significantly very quickly. Um, the Internet Association of Australia is also part of this, these discussions and they say that some of their members lack the capacity to design systems to ingest the large volumes of data needed to optimise their customer base. It's an interesting sort of take on things. Oh. Anyhow, um, yeah, watch this space. Lots of it comes up on itnews.com.au. It's worth uh, sussing things out there. What's going on with uh, Medibank? Ah, so ever since they had, a, a, you know, infamous... Uh, cyber attack. Yeah. There have been follow-through actions coming from APRA, which is the Australian Prudential and Regulation Authority. Uh, So the the major cyber incident that everyone was talking about was back in October. That feels – I can't believe it's October already. Like, it's so long ago. Um, But they – one of the requirements that APRA have put in place are that they have to keep at least $250 in capital on hand – reflecting weaknesses identified in Medibank's information security environment um, until an agreed remediation program of work is completed to APRA's satisfaction. They also expect Medibank to ensure there is appropriate accountability and consequence management, including impacts to executive remuneration. Now, hopefully the audience can understand uh, which parts I'm quoting directly here because Mm. it doesn't sound like how I would speak. (laughs) Uh, so, you know, there have been some serious uh, consequences. Yeah. It, fe- it feels like um, uh, impacts to executive remuneration might be a kind of thing that might be motivation to um, have more secure... <laughs> I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> um, but APRA have released a 2020 to 2024 cybersecurity strategy, so they are trying to look at the market as a whole and what collectively companies can do to try and, you know, protect against breaches, what the penalties are, but also what standard protections might look like. Mm. Um, So that's kind of interesting. But it's also just about, you know, the consistency of approach. You know, there's a lot of talk about having to have a national approach, a consistent approach. Um, There's obviously talk going on in the background about whether, Anyone wants to bring in legislation to make it illegal to pay fines, uh, not fines, um, ransoms. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, it's that we don't negotiate with terrorist type approach. Be interesting to see. Yeah. Anyhow, that's what's going on there. Um, uh, Google. Google. So this is this is fascinating. I don't know if anyone's been um, using Google's Bard AI tool and experimenting, Joe. I have Joe? definitely not been experimenting with that i've just been getting frustrated with um with with google as a as a as a search engine in general because it just doesn't seem to provide the same level of results as i used to get yeah i i think that's um 
that's a common experience that the the search result hits are declining in quality. Mm. Um, but they've certainly got some other very strong services that I rely on, like Google oh, absolutely, Maps and, every single day. Yeah, the translation type yep. of tools, and we know they've got tremendous resources. So uh, it's been interesting to see how they rush to compete. There's a story on Engadget saying that they are getting better at programming with BARD AI, as in BARD AI is getting better at helping individuals program. Um, it can also export things to Sheets, which gives it a lot of powerful capability. Uh, so it'll be interesting to experiment with that. But there's also hidden in some of the changes was an adjustment to their privacy policy to clarify that they'll take everything, anything that they can access on the internet to feed their AI so um, it's in the language, we may collect information that's publicly available online or from other public sources to help train Google's AI models and build products and features like Google Translate, etc. So that, how does that work with copyright? I guess it's all hinging on that word publicly available and what that definition is mm. and what sorts of conditions people have agreed to when they've published their content on other platforms and in all these places online. I suppose we train our own brains on publicly available information, so yeah, so the devil's in the not detail. seeing much difference. Well, it'll be very interesting to see what sorts of challenges come out of this and who's in a position to indeed make those challenges. Uh, that's part of the, the difficulty there is that they're sweeping up tons and tons of data but who will be the test cases to challenge them and say a we know that we're in your data set and mm. b um we can you know prove that there's some loss well, we've, and we've what have you like <laughs> seen a lot of um visual artists um say it, that it's very obvious that their works have been used to train yes. some of those um generated art absolutely so be interesting and, and to, see, to see how they prove it in terms of text. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's quite easy to use a prompt with an mm. artist's name and check, you know, and you see it with musicians. Yeah. If they can well, do it in your style, clearly yeah, they've sucked the up your content. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Um, so who knows? We're into a very interesting period of legal testing, I'm sure. Mm. And it's got to be, like, who's big enough to take on those cases? Surely music publishers would be one of the ones who are big enough that, you know, they're collectively organised and yeah. in a way that doesn't necessarily uh, protect musicians sometimes. But, yeah, um, yeah it would be interesting to see. All right. Um, and uh, Adobe uh, facing um, a review of their... $20 billion takeover of Figma, $20 billion US. Wow. So Figma's this incredible tool. Have you used it, Jo? Uh, I haven't, but I have um, colleagues that uh, used it. Yeah, yeah. so it's a visualisation tool that you can use for things like wireframing and process and flow diagrams and that sort of thing. And um, mocking up interfaces, it's, it's, it's really powerful. And people love it. Yeah. They tend to love it. So it was pretty significant when Adobe brought them in under their wing. It sounds like Adobe's going to replace XD with Figma. Yes. there's That room has been around for a long, long time mm. and it seems more likely now. Yeah. But uh, this is being swept up in one of those, you know, anti-competitive conduct actions. Right. Um, so in the EU, you know, they're scrutinising deals of this size and of this significance to the market. As they should. Yep. Well, it's happening a lot in the States as well. There's so many... Um, antitrust yeah. actions on at the moment 
Anyhow, this this particular, um, let me say, the acquisition. Oh no, sorry. The the European Commission filed, um, and set a provisional deadline of the seventh of August. So there's a bit of time to decide whether to open an in-depth probe into this acquisition or to clear it. So I guess we'll know by then. Um, And that the deal was notified on the 30th of June. So, you know, last day of our financial year. Anyhow. We'll find out. Very interesting. Um, It's The deal is also being probed by the UK's competition watchdog and they filed with the US Department of Justice, which is the one filing all of these antitrust Um, matters in the US. So, yeah, they're looking at – they're being scrutinised from a number of fronts about whether we want this sort of conglomeration of of tools and, um, yeah, lack of – yeah, increasing lack of choice for some of these consumers. There you go. All right, I think that is all the news that's fit to print in our – Triple R. On Triple R, you're with Bite Into It. Uh, I'm Vanessa. We have Joe pushing the buttons and keeping me honest over there. That's <laughs> your role. I think so. I think so. It's, you've got an honest I'm, face. I'm the cheer squad. <laughs> Look, uh, we thought we'd spend a little bit of time thinking about what's been happening with Twitter at the moment. It's no news to people who spend some time there that the changes to leadership are quite having noticeable effects on the platform itself. In the last week, there was a some sort of change made to uh, how you were calling different, different um, I guess, so what was, pieces. So what was happening was that um, they tried to make it so that you could only view tweets when you were logged in. Yes. And um, when someone tried to load one of those tweets in the browser... Um, it came up with a login page, but they hadn't um, configured it correctly, and so it was pulling the request Type repeatedly. Kept it, yeah, and so they were DDoSing themselves. Um, yes, yeah, clever. And then they um, uh, sort of backwards explained it. There were so many interesting threads, though, of people trying to understand what could have gone wrong. Like, why did you decide to make this change now? Why did you decide to massively throttle the volume of asks of your service, of people trying to suck down tweets? Why would you reduce the amount of tweets that people could access and slow them down when that's presumably, you know, the more tweets people see, the more ads they're seeing, you know, the more your service is working? Um, So various people suppose that they hadn't paid um, some of their bills, and they in turn were being throttled perhaps by their Amazon services, you know, and or perhaps by Google and all these sorts of threads got posted by experts in their fields and retweeted and it's very hard to know, like, the truth from fallacies, but a lot of it sounded plausible, which even the fact that you're in a market where you're, you know, ferociously otherwise enthusiastic tweeters are saying these things about your business, <laughs> it's a, such a bad sign. Uh, But fascinating to see. Uh, So there were a number of side effects. Uh, The number of active users on Mastodon rose by 294,000 over the weekend, according to their CEO. huge. It's huge. And the fact that they didn't crash with that sort of demand, you know, the decentralization is working. That's that's the key. 
Also, I hear the key because I've been having trouble getting used to so many navigation changes, you know, mm. in the switch. Um, I find it very difficult to use. Yeah. Well, someone has recommended the Ivory app for browsing Mastodon to me. Now, I haven't had a chance to dive in yet, but it's on my to-do list. All right. So, I'll install that one and next time I'm here, I'll let you know. If anyone has some live experience with that, you can feel free to... Yeah, text us. Yeah. Yeah. If you've had any experience with the Ivory app... Send us a text, 0466-981-027, keen to hear. Yeah, or if there's something else you prefer for using Mastodon, that would be good to know too. If you have Blue Sky invites, also keen oh, yeah. <laughs> send us your Blue Sky invites. We want to know what it's like. Absolutely. As, as we said, 0466-981-027. Yeah, so Blue Sky's obviously had a tremendous amount of attention too. I had a journalist mate from Hong Kong message saying they were in and am I in there? And I'm like, oh, not yet, <laughs> not yet. Um, but it's really, not famous enough, Vanessa. Oh, I, I'm well aware. <laughs> <laughs> I do think it's probably more important that journalists in Hong Kong get access before absolutely, I do. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so I've got my priorities straight. Um, there's also a bit of news about Twitter rolling out a new tweet deck and making it exclusive to Twitter Blue users. Mm. Uh, <laughs> Isn't everything these shame. days? So, you know, the idea is that tweet deck would help you, um, you know, manage your Twitter account. Like, yeah. Yeah. I guess. Scheduled tweets. All your saved searches and lists yeah. and columns would carry over there and you could compose things with more features and get into spaces and video docking and do polls and all that sort of thing. Um, yeah, so it'll be interesting to see. Very soon it, all, lots of those features will switch over to verified users to access via TweetDeck. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see will our lists break. Yeah. For example, the, the – uh, Byte Twitter account uses lists to keep track of who's been a guest on the show if they have a Twitter handle, you know, so will that fall apart? And, you know, Triple R announces that we know of. We have a little list for them so we can tweet at them and, you know, request yeah, songs like to, any I other I used person. to heavily rely on lists back when I actually used Twitter. They were a lovely feature yeah. to just browse on a focused topic. Yeah. Very few of us are SMEs only posting on one thing yeah. and, and caring about getting Twitter famous. But really, as a practical way of searching content. We have a, a listener so app recommendation for uh, Mastodon. Yeah. Uh, Tusky. It's an Tusky. Android app. There you go. Yeah. Cute name too. Yeah. All right. We're in. Thanks for that. Appreciate the tips. For the Android users out there. Love it. Um, there's also a bit of Twitter adjacent news, which is that Instagram's competitor for Twitter is set to launch oh, tomorrow. That's Threads. It'll isn't be it? sort of the day after it's Aussie time. Yeah, yeah, Threads. It'll be that's really right. interesting to see what that's like. Everyone wants to know what will they come up with. Um, and um, do you think it's going to use people's um, Facebook identities, or will people be able to have, uh, you know, um, handles? I'm sure they'll be able to have a separate identity because. They are trying to capture a youth market that they don't believe lives on Facebook. Yeah. So, and judging by the approach they took to Instagram, I think that's the way they'll go. What do you think? Yeah, it's, I reckon as well. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how much cross-branding they have because mm. when, they, when Facebook first bought Instagram and they put, the, you know, a Facebook company on the front or, yeah. or a meta company, yeah. they got a big backlash from users. So they might 
not do that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's part of the meta people rebrand. Probably, yeah. People are probably kind of beyond Over that point. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah, yeah. a battle of two it unattractive feels, it giants. It feels like um, Instagram's kind of heading the, the way of um, Facebook in terms of that's not where the kids are. And all that focus on reels has been really damaging because oh, yeah. people stopped using their grid. Yeah. You know, and yeah. is something never, grid worthy? It's so, they, t- they increased pressure. I feel like I never get to see my friends' grid posts because they never show up. I have like 10 sponsored or suggested posts before I even see a friend's post. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And then also when you realise that they're cross-posting those reels onto Facebook, it's really off-putting. Yeah. You just think, well, that's a real disincentive to make a reel. Um, Yes. Anyhow, we could go on for a long time about all the things that we think are wrong with the world. can and I will. Melbourne's own. Triple R. We uh, have tons of stuff going on with uh, China at the moment, and they have restricted the export of chip making metals as part of a trade clash that they're having with the United States. So they've just imposed some restrictions on the export of two metals that are really important to parts of um, the telecommunications industry. Um, EV industries, semiconductor industries. And these materials are gallium and germanium, which I never thought would come up in my life after Year 9 chemistry. (laughs) So very interesting. So with the export of these metals, does that mean that chips aren't being made that much in China? Are chips being made in in the U.S.? Um, It's partly because the US wants to ramp up sourcing chips from places other than China. So this is a way, as I read it, that China can help put the squeeze on that, um, that people, exporters of those metals will need to apply for licenses from the Commerce Ministry if they want to start or continue to take them out of China and they have to report on all of these overseas buyers and their applications. Right. So um, it depends on the stockpile of how much of this metal is out there already um, or of these, you know, chemicals are out there already, the how soon it will have an effect on the industry. But people think it's more a sabre-rattling type of, mm. you know, demonstration of power. Yeah. Uh, China accounts for about 94% of the world's gallium production, according to the UK Critical Minerals Intelligence Centre. I love that they have wow. that. Wow. There you go. Um, but these particular minerals like metals aren't that rare or difficult to find but people going to China get them cheap and they can be quite high cost to extract so the processing of them is expensive so they're abundant but yeah expensive to process um anyhow so that's going on and I think in you know what you could see is quite related news people like the EU and Japan are looking to partner on AI and chips as um EU's China de-risking strategy continues. So we've talked about them encourage the EU encouraging um, silicon chip production within the EU and making sure that not all of the production is happening in China. So they want to build up a comparable, you know, capability. And now they're looking at other areas which they can um, diversify their sourcing, but also their technical skills. Mm, you so know, this all seems related. Yeah. It really does. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it was quite interesting to see they – well, you don't hear a lot about EU-Japan partnerships here, and I just I wonder if it's just the sort of news that we're exposed to. 
but Japan is a key country in um, the supply of semiconductors um, and, well, the supply chain of that, you know, they, they do some key things. Obviously, their manufacturing capabilities are really mature and they want to strengthen their industry in that space. They uh, a fund backed by the Japanese government proposed to buy domestic chip-making firm JSR for about 903 billion yen. Whew. So it's billions of dollars in anyone's currency. Uh, and the EU has also been looking to strengthen their industry. So, yeah, it's just kind of interesting. You know, you can imagine the exchange is going beyond uh, minerals involved it's also information. It's also mm. capability. So where can we learn these capabilities from? And, yeah, well, Japan is a prime area for that. So there you go. Triple R. We uh, have tons of stuff going on with uh, China at the moment, and they have restricted the export of chip-making metals as part of a trade clash that they're having with the United States. So they've just imposed some restrictions on the export of two metals that are really important to parts of um, the telecommunications industry, um, EV industries, semiconductor industries. And these materials are gallium and germanium, which I never thought would come up in my life after Unine Chemistry. (laughs) So very interesting. So I... With the export of these metals, aren't, does that mean that chips aren't being made that much in China? Are chips being made in the, in the US? Um, it's partly because the US wants to ramp up sourcing chips from places other than China. So right. this is a way, as I read it, that China can help put the squeeze on that um, that people – exporters of those metals will need to apply for licenses from the Commerce Ministry if they want to start or continue to take them out of China and they have to report on all of these overseas buyers and their applications. Right. So um, it depends on the stockpile of how much of this metal is out there already um, or of these, you know, chemicals are out there already, how soon it will have an effect on the industry. But people think it's more a sabre-rattling type of, mm. you know, demonstration of power. Yeah. Uh, China accounts for about 94% of the world's gallium production, according to the UK Critical Minerals Intelligence Centre. I love that they have wow. that. Wow. There you go. Um, but these particular minerals, like metals, aren't that rare or difficult to find, but people going to China get them cheap and they can be quite high cost to extract, so the processing of them is expensive. So they're abundant, but, yeah, expensive to process. Um, anyhow, so that's going on, and I think in you know what you could see as quite related news, people like the EU and Japan are looking to partner on AI and chips as um, EU's China de-risking strategy continues. So we've talked about them encourage the EU encouraging um, silicon chip production within the EU and making sure that not all of the production is happening in China. So they want to build up a comparable, you know, capability. And now they're looking at other areas which they can um, diversify their sourcing, but also their technical skills. Mm, you so know, the skills. related. Yeah. It really does. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it was quite interesting to see they 
Well, you don't hear a lot about EU-Japan partnerships here, and I just I wonder if it's just the sort of news that we're exposed to. But Japan is a key country in um, the supply of semiconductors um, and, well, the supply chain of that, you know, they, they do some key things. Obviously, their manufacturing capabilities are really mature and they want to strengthen their industry in that space. They uh, a fund backed by the Japanese government proposed by domestic chip-making firm JSR for about 903 billion yen. So it's billions of dollars in anyone's currency. Uh, and the EU has also been looking to strengthen their industry. So, yeah, it's just kind of interesting. You know, you can imagine the exchange is going beyond uh, minerals involved. It's also information. It's also mm. capability. So where can we learn these capabilities from? And, yeah, well, Japan is a prime area for that. So there you go. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. We would like to welcome Professor Priya Rajagopalan uh, to the show. She's an Associate Dean and the inaugural Director of RMIT's Post Carbon Infrastructure and Built Environment Research Centre. And tonight, She's here to talk to us about a potentially provocative report about how Australia won't meet net zero goals without a national approach to home thermal efficiency. Um, we're nice and comfy here in studio, but we are thinking about the thermal efficiency. Welcome to the show, Professor. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Do you mind if we call you Priya? Yeah, yeah, that's good. Thank you. Well, we've got Joe and I'm Vanessa. Thanks for being with us. Um, obviously thinking about how we heat our homes, getting efficiencies in our homes when we're looking at a rising cost of living is something that I think everyone in Victoria is thinking about at this time. But tell me a bit about, you know, your research area and why you care so much about this topic. Okay, uh, I'm basically a building scientist and uh, very much interested into how our buildings actually perform and how much it actually contributes to energy consumption um, in a national and global scale and what can we do to improve our health, comfort and general well-being, which is very important in this, in this um, era of climate change and extreme uh, weather scenarios, which are becoming more and more frequent. Yes, we couldn't agree more. And these days, with people, you know, some of the population spending even more time at home uh, working remotely, I imagine it's only become more pressing. What do we know about the sorts of levels of um, thermal efficiency required in buildings in Australia at this point? Okay, so we need to look at there are two cohorts of housing stock in Australia. The first one is um, new homes, and the second cohort is the existing homes. So the introduction of new energy efficiency standards and continuous improvement of existing standards is a necessary step to improve new homes. And But we also need to make sure that they are uh, actually what is designed is being built because currently the new homes, um, designers are relying on software tools to help them make sure the designs are meeting the minimum standards. But 
Often what is designed in the software doesn't translate fully in the real setting because there could be unexpected air leakage or moisture entry in the physical build that the software is unable to predict. So that is uh, one of the issue. And then we have um, existing house. So most of the houses, approximately 10 million homes in Australia are built before the, the energy efficiency standards are introduced, uh, sometimes early 2000. Mm. And um, the, the first standard introduced in 2003 was five stars. So the more star means the better energy efficient. Uh, and the recent um, 2020 NCC National Construction Code actually introduced seven-star building, um, which um, some some states are still not really introduced them in, in full floods. Uh, but those buildings be built before 2003, uh, an average star rating is always quoted as two-star, which need, you know, um, a great lot of work to be, to be as energy efficient as the existing building stock, which uh, we hope they are built uh, as per the specification. I can understand a little bit of what you're talking about because I have seen a lot of episodes of Grand Designs where even people with really spectacular budgets do little um, air tests on how airtight their property is and, and some of the thermal efficiencies and, and they find that they're not immediately up to grade. Uh, yeah. So I think hopefully people have seen that sort of thing. I understand, you know, the new home aspect and that that would be, you know, you're aiming for the gold standard. It's with the best information mm. we have now. But uh, what sort of proportion of existing homes are we looking at or what proportion are new homes? Um, I think the, the issue with new homes is they are not performance verified. Mm, so okay. we, we are not really verifying whether a building designed for seven standard is actually performing as per seven standard. So we need to do a proper assessment uh, and uh, ro roll out the reliable and accurate information about house home assessment first to make sure they are really performing as per the standard. And then once we do have a better understanding of the performance of our homes, what sorts of interventions are available for people, you know, once they're out of building stage? Um, are there things that individuals can do or do they need to bring in contractors to make any improvements in their homes? Um, I think there are there are simple things which people could do, but first of all, we need to understand you know the performance of our house. Like mm. even looking at your energy bills, um, how do you actually benchmark your bills with respect to a similar house? Uh, similar in a way means similar size or similar number of people. And if you are paying really high compared to the sometimes the electricity bills. Energy bills give uh, those kind of information, you know, for a house with two or three people, what should be uh, average consumption. Mm -hmm. And if you're paying too much over that, um, that shows that there is some issue there. But, you know, th th there are a lot of things in inside your energy bill and up to 50% of them could be uh, heating and cooling and the remaining could be, you know, your lighting, appliances, uh, cooking, etc. 
Uh, and also, you you can feel you know if you're fe- feeling too cold, if you see drafts uh, air coming in underneath the door, um, there are simple things you could do, which most of us would be you know using draft proofing sure. and windows. Yes, <laughs> yes, door, little door, snakes door, under the doors. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> got you. I think um, a lot of people have become accidental experts in in that. Yeah. Uh, particularly in Victoria, where we notice the cold. <laughs> All right. Well, are there are there national standards at the moment in terms of you know what what we should be aiming for? Yeah, there are uh, standards, which is the National Construction Code, which is um, renewed every three years okay. and uh, aiming for standards. But the implementation is the difficult part, which uh, we all supposed to be, you know, going into seven stars from this year, which unfortunately is not really happening at the moment. So I know living in an apartment building, they had to um, issue a a certificate of occupancy before people could move in. And um, does it check for that sort of thing, that it's in line with the thermal efficiencies set out in the 2020 National Construction Code? Uh, not, not unfortunately, that's not really happening. So Mm. they're just checking basic things in the construction, but Mm -hmm. not performance certified about, you know, how people will be actually feeling uh, thermally inside the home. And we, we are talking about winter winter performance now, but what is important is, you know, if you are improving the envelope for uh, winter, particularly to keep the heat inside, that can potentially increase overheating risk <laughs> during the warmer season. Yes, and that becoming going to be a uh, more and more problematic because of you know the the frequent heat waves and extreme uh, heat events, particularly mm. in in some of the hot areas. So, what are people's thinking in your field on what Australian homeowners and and renters and people who live in you know homes in Australia? What should we be doing? Should we be asking? you know, our politicians for enforcement of yeah. the guides? Yeah, d- definitely. So so we need to really um, uh, roll out the affordable thermal performance assessment first, uh, which has to be, you know, as affordable for everyone. Otherwise, uh, people, you know, uh, since people are really struggling with, you know, financial issues, mm. they don't really have money to do an assessment. And, and but most importantly, um, this will need to lead to a retrofitting process um, and government assistance is urgently required for both uh, because you can buy you know, more energy-efficient lights and appliances for your home, but it is trickier and more expensive to retrofit a home to be more thermally efficient. Yes. So we could do simple uh, things like putting insulation under ceilings and window shades, they are easy, but sometimes some houses require deep retrofitting that will involve insulating walls and floors and sometimes up- upgrading new windows and eliminating thermal bridges. Mm. And this will all uh, cost money for the homeowners. It's definitely a concern. Um, Priya, we've spoken a lot about solar panels on this program because we've been curious about, you know, the sorts of incentives there and also how it tends to lock out people like renters from even the ability to tap into, you know, cleaner, more cost-effective energy sources. But in terms of the, the codes to improve thermal efficiency, do they go as far as prescribing some of the energy sources and the, the pros and cons 
Um, not, I mean, we, we are still talking about energy efficiency, uh, not really going into you know, the, the, the source of the energy. Sure. So, so the, but what we are aspiring is uh, decarbonization. Mm. And uh, we talk about you know, heat pumps, uh, reverse cycle air conditioning, and completely replacing gas appliances uh, for heating and uh, particularly heating. But they, for them to actually work very efficiently, we need to make sure you know the houses are designed to be thermally efficient. Otherwise, it will be just uh, kind of um, pouring a water through gaps. Um, so efficiency is important before we look into the active um, energy mm. uh, use, use uh, systems. And understanding how efficient our existing homes are seems to be really important. Have you seen any progress with the sorts of smart home devices and, and sensor-filled homes of the future? Are, are you seeing any um, helpful things in that space? Um, I think the, the, the cost is the uh, issue there also. I mean, there are a lot of things uh, regarding smart homes. You know, people can have different sensors here and there, and you could integrate them into your your um, TV or <laughs> all other entertainment systems. Mm. But sometimes even those smart gadgets can take, even uh, more energy compared to what you're oh. doing. <laughs> it's a trade-off. Yeah, so if you don't really know how they, those sensors actually work, and even sometimes, you know, uh, sometimes they just cancel each other uh, due to various reasons. So, uh, unless you completely understand the system, I wouldn't say you know you you are still ready to go into that smart home. Um, oh, Systems, That's yes. very interesting. You almost want to see, you know, council-type devices giving you mm. general ratings for your area and, and helping you benchmark to make sense of the data that you do have. Uh, yeah, so I think I, I think that the data, what you're talking is an interesting point. Data is really important, but um, sometimes, you know, without understanding the data and just using, uh, for example, AI or those kind of um, data analytical tools, um, without understanding might give you completely flawed results. And um, so I, I would still say it's, Basically, the people who are living inside, they understand the homes much better. And also you can have, you know, officers uh, that provide independently verified, verified, reliable, clear and accurate information. And you need to go a bit more one step into looking into, you know, what these assessments actually give you um, and how do you use the results from the assessment to be able to provide solution um, to uh, for retrofitting and also um, a one-stop shop kind of thing, which can offer all the services required for a thermal upgrade. Because there are a lot of information out there for the homeowners, but they are at the moment very disjointed and can be confusing. Yes, and, and we need a bit we, more of a cohesive approach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So th that approach should be, you know, um, something like you start with the assessment and then you provide um, access to contractors and specialists to guide them in, yes. the, in the solutions and also getting the codes, also presenting financial options, applying for grants if there are available and organizing work completion and to make sure that it, they are all performance verified after the, the whole 
work is completed. Well, you lay it out so logically there. I can only hope that we get the sort of investment that we need, but I love hearing a cohesive approach to problem solving in this area. We have been speaking with Professor Priya Rajagopalan, who's Associate Dean and Inaugural Director of RMIT's Post-Carbon Infrastructure and Built Environment Research Centre. Do check out their work at um, RMIT's website. Thanks so much for speaking with us tonight, Professor. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Thanks so much for listening to Triple R this evening. We've been bite into it, Joe and Vanessa. Thanks to our guest, Priya Rajagopalan, and our talks producer, her last week with us, Mel Fulton. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much, Mel. Oh, thanks to our new podcaster, Scott Davies. That's great news. Um, bite into it. We'll be back next Wednesday evening. But you're in for a great time now with the International Pop Underground with Anthony Carew. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.